Welcome back to another episode of the Big Black and Scary Podcast. I am your host, Brie Renee, and on this episode, we will be covering and reviewing and discussing Midnight Mass. So for this one, we're going to do episodes one, two, and three um, on the Netflix original horror series. Um, we'll do our normal format with director, director, um, producers, writers, and cast, and then we'll do a synopsis of each of those episodes, and then I will review it, and we'll also discuss the Rotten Tomatoes uh, score that they got, which is for the entire series, but we'll just discuss it this time, and if it comes up again later, that is what it is. So, it is directed, Midnight Mass was directed by Mike Flanagan. He also, um, you know, he's a horror he has made his name in horror. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, he has been involved either directing, writing, or editing, or all of those for Absentia, Oculus, Hush, Before I Wake, um, Ouija, Origin of Evil, Gerald's Game, Doctor Sleep, Haunting of Hill House, which is one of my favorites, which we will be reviewing that as well. Um, and the cast includes some people that you've seen in his work before, like Cake Siegel, Zach Guilford. Thomas Linklater and Henry Thomas, and like two of those people were in Haunting of Hill House. So on to the synopsis for episode one. So in episode one, we're introduced to Crockett Island via the return of Riley Flynn, who is played by Zach Guilford. Riley grew up there, but fled as soon as possible, eventually making a bit of money in stocks and a startup on the mainland, but losing everything after he got drunk, got in his car, and killed a young woman named Tara Beth. Riley is sentenced to serving time in prison. At night, he is haunted, though seemingly only in his mind, by visions of the girl's dead body, complete with police strobe lights reflecting off the bits of glass embedded in her face. When Riley is released four years later, he returns to Crockett Island, not out of a sense of comfort or relief, but rather because he has nowhere else to go. His mom, Annie, and brother, Warren, are happy to have him back. His father, Ed, deeply disapproves of his older child's wrongdoings and makes his feelings known. Around the same time, Riley comes back. A mysterious man with a giant trunk arrives on one of the two daily ferries from the mainland. When the man gets to a house, he enters and drags the trunk in after him. He kneels next to it, bangs on the trunk twice, and whatever is inside bangs back. Also around that time, Warren and some friends canoe to the uninhabited northern part of the island, which is mostly overgrown old homesteads populated by stray cats. The teens, except for Warren, drink and smoke weed, joking about a local legend called Harpoon Harry. And when some cats in the underbrush nearby make a ruckus, Warren shines his light in their direction and freaks out when he thinks he sees something. But the thing isn't there when he looks again, so he laughs the whole thing off. We haven't yet dealt with Beverly Keene, a deeply devout layperson who essentially runs the island's Catholic church, St. Patrick's. She's surprised when Monsignor Pruitt, the parish priest, isn't aboard Riley's ferry. He's expected back after a long trip to Israel. As we later learn via dinner conversation at the Flynn home, Pruitt was 80 and senile prone to wandering around, 
disoriented at night. When former altar boy Riley and current altar boy Warren joke about it, the conversation infuriates Ed. He tells Riley, who'd previously said he wasn't planning on attending church while home, to do so and to consider the condition of his parole, much like the mandatory Alcoholics Anonymous meeting he must go to once a week on the mainland. Along the way, we meet some of the town's other residents. There's Mayor Wade, his wife, Dolly, and their daughter, Lisa, who uses a wheelchair to get around. The town physician, Dr. Sarah Gunning, and her dementia-suffering mother, Mildred, the town drunk, Joe Colley, the lone Crockett Island, Sheriff Hassan and his teen son, Ali, whose Muslim faith is a frequent topic of conversation in the mostly Catholic town, and Aaron, whom Riley dated when they were teenagers and who is now single and 20 weeks pregnant with their first child. We, learn, we also learned that Crockett Island was hit hard by a nearby oil spill several years earlier. The local fishing industry hasn't been the same since, and several families have just left without even trying to sell their properties. This isn't a community anymore, honey, Annie sadly tells Riley. It's a ghost. On the eve of a giant storm, St. Patrick's parish parishioners gather for mass. A young priest who is decidedly not 80 or senile walks, out, walks in at the start of the service and introduces himself as Father Paul Hill. It's the man we saw rapping on the trunk. He says the diocese sent him after Monsignor Pruitt fell ill and had to be hospitalized on the mainland. However, I assure you, there is absolutely nothing to worry about, Father Paul tells them. This is a temporary situation. Afterward, Bev Keene, whom you can already tell is a stickler for the rules, calls out the priest for wearing a gold chasuble instead of the green one, usually worn during ordinary time in the Catholic calendar. He says he couldn't find the green one, and he laughs a bit, but someone definitely seems, something definitely seems off about him. As the storm rolls in later, we see Father Paul reading on his couch, trunk open next to him at the Flynn home. Oh, trunk open next to him. At the Flynn home, the power goes out. Not long after, Riley sees someone standing on the beach wearing a long coat and hat. He's sure it's Monsignor Pruitt, even though he's not supposed to be on the island. Riley runs out into the molestrum trying to catch the man. At one point during a lightning flash, the man looks back, but then he runs faster away from Riley. The next morning, a huge flock of seagulls are going absolutely bonkers over whatever is washed up on the beach. And when the Flynn family goes to investigate, we see a ton of dead cats littered among the shoreline as far as the eye can see. In episode two, after Father, Father Paul learns that Riley has to travel all the way to the mainland weekly for his mandatory AA meetings, he offers to start a chapter on the island. When Riley shows up at the rec center, it's just the two of them, but Father Paul has still taken it upon himself to set up a full coffee spread. Though Riley appeared to be more of a silent participant in his mainland AA meeting, this isn't the case with Father Paul because he doesn't have much of a choice. The two launch into a heavy conversation, digging deep into the topics of alcoholism, recovery, and religion, and Riley's lack thereof at this point in his life. In this episode, we learn that the oil company responsible for the disastrous spill years ago approached the residents with settlement offers. Beverly encouraged people to take these payments from the start, even though they weren't actually all that great when compared to the years of lost wages that the townsfolk had suffered. 
She then convinced them to donate that money to the church, which was put toward building the rec center. Joe pointedly believes that Beverly killed half the island with the settlement. Earlier in the episode, there's a strange moment when Father Paul is walking beside Lisa and she comes to a stop without warning. She's staring at Joe and his dog looking uncomfortable. Then during the potluck, we finally learn that Lisa was paralyzed by Joe during a drunken hunting accident. Later at church, Father Paul approaches Lisa so that she can take communion. However, there's a calculating look on his face as he takes a step forward. Lisa moves forward in her chair, but Father Paul walks up the steps further out of her reach. The room is confused and angry on Lisa's behalf until Father Paul beckons her forward and she stands. Shock reverberates throughout the room as Lisa tentatively takes what are likely her first steps on her own since the accident. Crockett Island has a yearly potluck gathering, which seems to be a happy, cozy affair with music, food, and conversation. However, the mood quickly plunges when Joe's dog, Pike, is poisoned and dies. There are several players present that may have had motives, such as Lisa's parents, who looked angry from the moment they noticed Joe had arrived. However, there's also someone who would have caused to target Pike directly, Beverly. In the first episode, it's made quite obvious that she dislikes the dog seemingly for no real reason. And to make things even more suspicious, she was shown handling rat poisoning early in the episode, though she told Aaron that it was to control the rats that had become a nuisance after the storm. She talked Sheriff Hassan in circles when he came to question her, but his conversation with Joe shows that he's still suspicious of her nonetheless. If anything, he absolutely knows that it was poison that killed Pike. There's an interesting point in the episode where the scene pans out to a wide shot of the island from above. As the camera pulls downward, swooping to and fro, we realize that we're seeing this from the perspective of something that's in the air. Whatever it is, it ends up dropping down through the roof of an old abandoned home, landing inside with a thud. Later, Erin hears noises upstairs in her house while she's downstairs, followed by the telltale crunch of something landing outside. When she looks out the window, she doesn't see anything, but the audience sees a quick flash of what's likely the creature that was seen in the uppers in the first episode, tall and dark with glowing eyes. Erin then pays a late night visit to Sarah to make sure that the spotting she noticed in the bathroom is nothing serious. Shortly after she leaves, Sarah's mother begins screaming for her. Startled, Sarah runs to her and she tells her that she saw her father, who's been dead for 15 years, looking in at her through the window beside her bed. The same evening, Bowl is walking by the abandoned house that the creature landed in, and the front door seems to open by itself. He calls out to see who's there, and his own voice parrots back at him moments later. When he finally goes inside to investigate, the creature crawls out from the darkness in the corner and then rises up to stand at full height. It rushes at Bowl, attacking him, and the front door swings shut. In episode three, the town is in awe over Lisa's recovery as she carefully makes her way through the streets on her own two feet. Lisa decides to finally pay Joe a visit, which leaves him shocked when he discovers her standing on the other side of the door. Bravely, in a heartbreaking moment, she finally confronts him over what he's done. She forces him to look her in the face as she blatantly tells him how angry she is, how upset she is, and how much he took from her, but she also forgives him. 
Lisa leaves Joe with some harsh, stinging truths as her parting words, which inspire him to finally join Father Paul and Riley's AA meetings. Father Paul nudges Riley to take advantage of how much he's opened up in the past few weeks, encouraging him to try speaking to Joe. Afterward, Joe admits that he didn't think he'd ever step foot in that place, but he seems happy that he finally did for the meeting. Sheriff Hassan finds himself at odds with Beverly's self-righteous dedication to her religion when he discovers that Ali, his son, was given a Bible at school. The two have a heated back and forth exchange during a town meeting, which unfortunately doesn't quite go the way he planned once she wins over half the room going on about the town's full-blown religious revival. Later, at home, Ali asks his father if he can go and check out St. Patrick's on Sunday, which Sheriff Hassan outright refuses. Ali, upset, accuses him of never letting him make his own choice choices. He didn't get to choose to be Muslim, and he also didn't get to choose to move to Crockett Island. Sheriff Hassan, however, explains his own view on these miracles as he reflects back on the devastating pain of losing his wife, Ali's mother, to pancreatic cancer. When Sheriff Hassan goes to turn off Ali's bedside light, he's startled to see a face with glowing eyes staring directly inside the window of the house. Sarah has her work cut out for her taking care of her mother, Mildred, who doesn't even know where she is half the time. Knowing how devout she was before her health declined, Father Paul regularly makes home visits to see her. Clearly, those visits have been paying off because one evening, Sarah finds her mother out of bed and standing up on the other side of the room. Sarah's initial concern melts to confusion when her mother, suddenly very lucid, tells her that she feels like she's been in a dark place and just finally woke up. The two embrace. Shortly after Lisa's miracle, we see Father Paul excuse himself from the service very quickly. He runs to the rectory and throws up blood in the sink. Things continue to get worse as he's performing another service to a packed church courtesy of the miracle and passes out. Then, after his AA meeting with Riley and Joe ends, he collapses to the floor the moment they leave the rec center. Father Paul manages to drag himself to the rectory where his sink is being fixed while Beverly discusses plans for the community dinner with Lisa's parents. As soon as he gets inside the door, he careens into a table and then falls to the ground, spitting up blood profusely. He eventually goes still, and it appears that, that he's dead until the cutscene finally reveals his biggest secret before he sits up gasping for air. Throughout the course of the episode, a story unravels in bits and pieces from a scene of Father Paul sitting in the confessional booth before his first church service on Crockett Island. He speaks to God about how Monsignor John Pruitt was much sicker than the town thought he was when they sent him on his trip to Jerusalem. His oncoming dementia caused him to wander off from his tour group frequently, and he eventually found himself lost in the desert in the middle of a sandstorm. He took shelter in a cave that had been unearthed from deep beneath the sands during the storm. By the light of a match, he soon discovered that he was not alone. There was a figure in the corner of the cave, the humanoid creature, winged and hairless with long talon-like fingernails, began drinking its blood. Then... It fed him its own blood, and Monsignor Pruitt woke up the next morning very much alive and young, bearing the face of Father Paul. When speaking of this memory, Father Paul does not refer to this creature as a vampire, but rather he regards it as an angel. 
He brought the creature back to Crockett Island with him in the chest, though it's unclear what exactly his intentions were in doing so. At the end of the episode, we see that the item Beverly was staring at on the wall in the rectory is a dated newspaper clipping of a young Monsignor Pruitt. Understandably, she had been shocked to realize that he was identical to the town's new priest, Father Paul. So that was the synopsis for episodes one through three. So we're going to move on to the review. So I gave it a 3.75 out of five. It was so close to like a four out of five. Like I was really leaning towards that because I think it was very good, but there were some key aspects and elements to it that kind of turned me off from it. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it got a 90%, which I think is reasonable. Um, it was it from a just purely horror fan perspective, it was really, really good. But from a critical thought and processing perspective, there were some things that I was like, okay, that's not cool. So I enjoyed watching Midnight Mass overall. Um, but these first few episodes, the first, particularly the first couple episodes or episode and a half, two episodes were very, very slow for me. Um, but I do know watching Flanagan's other work, he likes to build um, his own horror, what, can we call it a universe or is that just a Marvel comic universe? I don't know. Um, he likes to kind of build, um, like build these connections to the characters and make them um, extremely human while still putting them in these extremely non-human situations, these uh, psychological or paranormal or supernatural situations, but still having those very, very human aspects. Um, I do like, um, especially in these first three episodes, how meticulously he shows that religion is an, is an integral part on Crockett Island or the Crockpot, as they call it. Um, and I think the acting is is pretty good, even though the Zach Guilford, <laughs> he has no, like he always has stank face. <laughs> so his character always just looks annoyed to be there. Um, and But it was good seeing people that have already been involved with a lot of his, Flanagan's projects, including Henry Thomas, who's the dad, who played the dad in this. He also played the dad in Haunting of Hill House. Um, Zach Guilford, of course, and Kate Siegel, who was Theo in Haunting of Hill House. So again... I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was fun to watch. Um, the first three episodes, I think, laid a very good foundation um, for what's to come. And um, I did not figure out the entire show in the first three episodes. So that's a good thing. I've been trying to avoid doing it, but I can't help it because normally within the first two or three, maybe four episodes of any show, I can figure out what's going to happen. And with movies, I can usually figure out what's going to happen, you know, within the first 45 minutes to an hour, um, which kind of makes it suck to watch movies. But also I, I'm very like eager to see if I'm correct. So next week's episode, we will cover the last four episodes of this series. It was only seven episodes. It was short and sweet and to the point, And I really did like that part of it. Um and of course, you know, anytime there's a show, there's always at least one episode per season that absolutely pisses me off. So that is in the last several episodes or the last couple episodes is one of the ones that really, really pissed me off because of something a character did that really didn't need to be done. It was 
I get why he did it, but also men are dramatic. <laughs> so um, like I said, if if you haven't already started watching this, I highly recommend it. There are a few jump scares, but it's not super scary. Like you're going to have nightmares about it later. So I would highly recommend it. I do this show because I like to give reviews, because I like to talk about horror, and because I know there are scaredy cats out there that will not watch it, but they want to know what it's about. So I just gave you the synopsis of the first three episodes, and next week I'll give you the synopsis of the last four. So feel free to go back and listen to prior episodes. We have kind of revamped and redone some things, so it's not as... um, lengthy and so that it's not boring and so that I don't have to depend on other people to be consistent when I know that I can be consistent myself. So again, thank you so much for listening to the Big Black and Scary podcast. We will chat next week about the last four episodes of Midnight Mass.